0: Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Davis, the Pod Medic, and excited to have a very special guest on today uh, that we were able to connect with, and um, I'll have more about that as we get on to the show in a little bit. But uh, first, we have to bring in my co-host, Sam Bradley. Uh, Sam, uh, lots going on in today's episode that uh, both of us are real passionate about, and I'm looking forward to getting into chatting with our guest.
1: Oh, my God. I, I'm quite... Gobsmacked, as they say in the UK, which is where John happens to be. (laughs) And, you know, what this guy has done and what he's doing, and, you know, the three of us being authors, as we are. And the fact that there's so much going on in John's life, which is going on in my life right now and being supported by this podcast. So I can't wait to jump into this. And uh, John Enright, as I said, was an author. Uh, The best I can tell, he's written about. 12 books, so we're going to talk about those in a bit, but I really enjoyed his history. He's worked in over 40 occupations, ranging from grave digger, cocktail barman, tree surgeon, professional poker player—guy sounds like James Bond—and currently employed as a government transaction—transactor covering major infrastructure programs. But he, he's ridden a British Army motorbike across India to support several children's charities and worked in a mental health facility in Manhattan. So and And the thing we really want to focus on is if none of that was fun, but for 30 years he's been transporting medical aid to Romania, South America, and into Bosnia during the war. And he's still engaged in that. So, John, you're just... You're just magic. I don't know what else to say.
2: Uh, well, I'll say, first of all, that the, I'm, I'll use the English term, I'm gobsmacked to be on this program. It's a great honor, <laughs> uh, considering that the, you know, the guests that you've had before to be in such company. Um, but yes, it's it, it's a delight to be here. Um, yeah, my, my life has been quite colorful, shall we say. Um, bit less so now, uh, a bit older in the tooth and I judge myself as a as a dinosaur in terms of the aid work but I'm kind of t- still in touch of it although to be honest I wish I wasn't that there was no need for the likes of us to be involved in things like this uh, but nevertheless you can't you can't turn your head away
1: yeah you know something that you wrote really resonated with me that You know, these things always go full circle when you think something is is fixed and it's not. It just comes back in another form. But, you know, let's talk about some of the things you've done in the past. I'm quite fascinated by that, especially some of the humanitarian work that you did during the war. Can you talk about that?
2: Uh, Yes. Um, What happened was is that originally I started off that when the— Soviet Union collapsed and the Iron Curtain fell down, it kind of exposed a multitude of sins for the regimes that were there. So originally I helped out in Romania and that was setting up like you're helping to renovate buildings to be children's uh, hospices, unfortunately, because AIDS was prevalent. In Romania, even though the authorities didn't wish to uh, face it, and in fact they wanted to keep that very much hidden, uh, because they were looking for investment, uh, particularly from the West. Um, but due to my experience then, that when Bosnia started to erupt, after, you know in the Balkans, um, again I was kind of like asked, could I use my expertise to get trucks together? Very difficult, and in fact some of the things then that I did then I would certainly not recommend anyone to do now and that was because it was it was pretty much disorganized um NATO hadn't been involved the UN hadn't been involved but ethnic cleansing had already started and we knew that towns were being bombed and were being cut off so a few of us got trucks together I recruited uh, people of various skills from mechanics, um, you know, to drivers, and I, I could drive anything myself. And then a lot of um, uh, specialist support, which I know that you, um, you know, you highlight, uh, and the need for that from doctors and nurses, and and to get those people to where they were needed. But as I say, we were very much, you know, kind of a ragtail mob, you know, it was very much like wacky races, trying to, you know, get all these vehicles together and getting out there. Um, um, but we got through. Um, but it was perilous. Um, had to go through, you know, like to places like Mostar, past she- Shebronica, Nizza. um, you know, places like Sniper's Alley went back and forward uh, with the aid, and the aid was a target, you know, like it was, you know, by, by hostile forces, many of them mercenaries who were attracted Uh, To Bosnia at the time for the war. Many of those that were kind of like unemployed, um, you know, in terms of like with the fall of apartheid, South African police, you know, were out there. You had members of the Mujahideen, uh, Chetnia, you know, the early days of, you know, learning about, you know, warfare and using it as a kind of training ground, Northern Ireland. So you came across some strange characters, but we recruited our own uh, kind of like, you know, like an assortment of what I call rogues. of various uh, talents uh, to get that aid through. And, you know, we we had our near misses, but we got every single item through. But it was was perilous, um, you know, to do something like that. And we were all volunteers. but as I say, I wouldn't recommend anyone to do anything like that now, because as I say, now there are organized, um, you know, in the UK, we've got Disaster Emergencies Committee Appeal. If anyone wants to do anything, donate money to that rather than go yourselves, unless you're a nurse or a doctor or a firefighter or have a specialist skill that you, the Ukrainians need. Or you had Tim Connolly on, uh, uh, I think, in March, and talking about the Disaster Medical Collaboration, the IDMC. Go for organizations you know, like them, and, and, and the funding is so important.
1: Well, thank you for mentioning IDMC, because that's what we're doing. And you know, we're associated with a number of other NGOs that have boots on the ground right now, but they're part of a larger structure. And there's some safety in numbers, you might say. And, uh, you know, that's the important thing. But, you know, Jamie knows that we no matter what the disaster, we always discourage people from self-deploying because you're you're just out there on your own. You don't know who's going to support you. Uh, They can become, uh, you know. There's no benefit to the, the hosting agency there that don't know who you are or where you came from. There's just a lot of reasons why that's not a good idea. And, and often Gee. you become a
0: liability. Um, you end up not actually being able to provide the aid you seek to provide, and you become more of a liability for the people there that are having to provide help. They end up helping you, and rather than helping the people you wanted to help. So it really is important to remember that.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, uh, and I, I, as I said, you on when I first was involved in this, um, you know, we got together because there was very few organisations that were allowed to get in. But times have changed, and I've seen over the years, and particularly, you know, like after Bosnia, you saw with Afghanistan, you saw with Iran, that humanitarian aid workers suddenly became uh, an asset as far as many hostile forces were concerned. And, uh, you know, we, we took risks with our lives. But also of a sudden it became something like you could be captured, um, paraded in front of the television, used in terms of exchange, uh, you know, like so became, as you say, a, a liability. And that is why the world has changed. And the other big thing was social media. When I was involved in all this, I you know like we didn 't really have social media, uh, but now it 's impossible to escape it. Uh, it has its good points, but if you 're looking at being a, an aid worker, it can sometimes put a target on your back. And that has been seen in certain countries where people have been, I think it happened in Afghanistan, the Taliban were able to plot the movements of certain people moving. And even now I'm very sensitive, even the, the limited amount of work that I'm doing now in the Ukraine, never post anything of the, you know, like usually of the, where the aid has come from, where it's going, um, the people that you meet, you never know that you might open them up to a cyber attack. So I'm incredibly sensitive uh, to all this, but that's mainly because I've seen what's happened in the past.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right, and that's something we're very sensitive about. Um, you know, we certainly wouldn't want to put any, any of us or any of our cohorts in, in any kind of danger, so we're very limited to what we put on social media. So, John, what, you know, what inspired you to get involved in humanitarian efforts, even back in Bosnia?
2: Well, I think what happened with me was that um, Romania, uh, and as I say, you know, when the Iron Curtain fell, all of a sudden, like, people were shocked about what was, you know, like, what was on Earth. And Romania, for example, when we saw the film of, you know, the orphanages and, you know, like, that you would have six, sometimes eight children crammed in a in a metal cage cot – um some of them you know, and I saw it when i when I went out there, you know like that some were were tied to the to the railings and you know in the and you know in the stench and the illness that you would see there and so but originally, I was asked, could I just simply get some clothes together? And I said, "Well, I'll do that if you can convince me that that is exactly what the Romanian charities need." And we got back and found out well, actually they didn't really want clothing; they wanted um, medical supply, supplies, nothing out of date or anything else. They wanted proper stuff. And the other thing was needles, as I say, AIDS was prevalent in the in the in the hospitals because the same needles were being shared. So that was one of the big things, but. But like all these things, all of a sudden something happened. And that was when I collected the material and got some friends together on this. Um, All of a sudden, I, oh, well, I've got all the material. Uh, what next? Where's the trucks? There were no trucks. So then had to get the trucks together. Then recruiting the co-drivers. But when out there, we did some good work uh then. And then later on, you know, that carried on for a while. And then with Bosnia... Then, as I say, you know, like then you really saw what was needed. And it was like learning the hard way that there was no point doing any of this unless you knew that there were people at the other end, uh, that they wanted this, uh, that it was organized. And in a way that you were hoping that you would be made redundant. uh, Like, for example, now, once you get to the border, the best thing is, you know, in many cases, if the Ukrainians can take uh, the supplies that you've got, you know, apart from those with medical expertise who will go into Ukraine, which is essential, and, and, and firefighters that are able to help. So that was really how I got involved. And uh, it was incredibly dangerous, but met some amazing people along the way. And, um, you know, and it really did, you know, even in the height of war, you know, like that sense of restored your, you know, that cliche, restoring your faith in humanity. And I've seen that now in in the Ukraine, uh, you had uh, Dr. Cassia Hampton. I think that was saying uh, a couple of months ago that Poland had taken in one and a half million. Well, that figure now is over three million. Uh, half a million in Warsaw alone. What the Polish people have done, and when you talk of heroes, I would put them alongside the Ukrainians. Is phenomenal for what they are doing at, the, at this very moment.
1: Yeah, Kasia was involved very early on, and you know I've been in touch with her and. In, in she's going to be spending more time back there, you know, being as you were on the polish Ukrainian border, I was wondering if you might have run into each other there <laughs> or maybe you weren't there at the same time, but um you know they got like I said they got things going very early on, but one Brilliant. of the things that's that's interesting about what you're talking about is the very last podcast we did um you know we we talked about that that very thing that you need to wait until people request something because, you know, the Ukrainians aren't on the same level medically as we are. And if we Mm. send them something they're not familiar with, they're just not going to use it, which is a shame. So, you know, if we do that, we have to send the appropriate training along with it. Right, Jamie?
0: Absolutely. And I'm curious, you know, John, what kind of things you found that the ukrainians needed from your deliveries um what what kind of prompted you to to send the first load of our medical equipment and supplies over there
2: Well, in this case, it was very different for me, because what happened was I was contacted by groups that were already heading out there that had medical equipment. And it was really, you know, like in terms of like with crash vehicles uh, to renovate those and stocks being down. So I got a call to say that some of these were having problems in Poland. So I flew out there and my job was to try and help get those stuff to the border. Another thing that hit, obviously, was that some people were struck down with covid so, you know, got out there and there was a, you know, drivers couldn't do it. So it was like then jumping in the vehicle, getting it to the border, getting it to the right people. But then we had other problems as well. You know, like on the other side, you know, vehicles that we thought were going to turn up were, had to be diverted uh, to Donbass because of the in, you know, like Putin's plans in terms of like giving up in terms of the attacks on Kiev and then going more for Donbass and trying to see if those regions. So mine was a lot less involved in terms of Ukraine this time, whereas with Bosnia, it was like straight from start to finish, be there, you know, in terms of like the renovation of, you know, of like hospitals, orphanages, you know, on that. But basically it was trying to shadow, you know, ask to shadow some of these and get them through, get them up to the border, get them across. Well,
1: it's funny because when you mentioned – helping stranded aid trucks across the border, I was envisioning you, you know, digging into the motor to fix things. (laughs) I wasn't entirely sure what that meant.
2: (laughs) No, it was shocking. But I had to recruit some uh, mechanics out there and some very, uh, you know, one particularly interesting character that I was warned was not very friendly. And in fact, he barely spoke to me, but he was a fantastic mechanic. And I remember at the end, we worked together on one vehicle on one evening, thought it was amazing. And then, you know, as I stood back, you know, and just to say, well, you know, like I got my Polish phrase book out, was about to thank him and then turned around and he was driving off. So you do meet some interesting characters on this. Uh, But nevertheless, that was it. So I'm, I'm aware of my shortcomings when it comes to vehicles. I can drive anything, but a bit like Oddball in Kelly's Heroes, I'm not quite sure how they work.
1: Well it should be interesting you know maybe when one of your next books will have that guy in it because I guess what you've written so far has been uh, some of those journeys and some of the people you met along the way very much like mine are Um, so I'm very much looking forward to that Um, so you're going to be going back somewhere to do something soon huh?
2: Hopefully, but my passport has expired. And, you know, like, again, it's one of those things that you have to look at. It hasn't expired, but you can't, you're not allowed in a country if you've only got um, three months left on it. And I have just three months. So I have to, uh, you know, get that changed. And hopefully that's going to be a matter of weeks. And then if my family approve, you know, my wife has been fantastic. Uh, uh, So my boys, although one of them is only 10 months, so he doesn't say much, but I'm sure that he's nodded and approved what I'm doing. Um, So there'll be more of that, you know, unfortunately, but I really hope that when I do get my passport that the war is over. But sadly, I don't think it will be.
1: Yeah, not for a while. That's kind of what we're assuming as well, unfortunately. So, Let's talk a little bit about the Rogues, the Benevolence of Rogues. I was I was reading hmm. the the notes on that up and up in uh, Amazon. <laughs> um, so you use some of the, the some of your characters are people you actually worked with, correct?
2: The of Rogues was an interesting one, but yes, I mean what happened was I'd met uh, I'd lost two friends many years ago, and I met their children. Probably about fourteen fourteen years later, and I was stunned that they didn 't know anything about what their what their parents had done, and they had a very kind of dismissive view of their parents and I thought this isn 't Right. So I I'd always collected stories, anecdotes, kept them in a huge scrapbook. And I thought, no, I'm going to. And everyone always used to say to me, when's the book coming out? And I said, well, no, it's only for my own amusement. You know, they, you know, I'm quite a private person. But I thought, no. And I wrote The Benevolence of Rogues, changed some of the names, the position. But it, it talked about kind of a rites of passage, all the mistakes that you make, particularly as a young man, as you grow up, uh, which I did. Um, and talked about then about, you know, the rogues that I met, the characters, um, you know, that, that, that helped me in all the relief work I did. And, um, you know, some, you know, they, they came from all aspects. Uh, I remember there was a paper and it did a story on me and it said aid worker recruits, uh, gangsters and henchmen, uh, didn't do a lot for sponsorship, <laughs> but at the time, you know, like in terms of, the, you know, it was very difficult to get into some countries, but some characters helped me. And I remember being, you know, like virtually lifted off the street one night um, by, you know, thrown into a car in London and taken to see this um, crime lord. And I thought, I don't know what I've done. You know, I did c- clean living. Uh, but um, it turned out that his wife... Um, I had seen what had happened in terms of, you know, the insulin, that there was a lot of hospitals, that insulin and she, you know, where, where it was gone, you know, like, and there was children, you know, like who were going to die, you know, amputations uh, and that. And uh, he said, I, you know, like, uh, keep this quiet. I don't want anyone to know. they think I'm weak. Um, but he managed to get some of the, you know, like the, the money together for fuel and that to get across. So you met some interesting characters and I, I wrote those stories in benevolence and then. Later on, people said, "Well, that's, that was some. Are you going to write anything else?" And I thought, "Do you know what? I'm going to. I think I will. I enjoy this. I thought writing, you know, is, you know, it was very therapeutic and great fun, and I enjoyed writing, even though I have dyslexia and word blindness, but I have some good editors. Uh, and then I thought of moments in history um, when what were the rogues that I knew? What would they have done, for example, in the 1930s? And I wrote." Um, a, a thriller and it was called um, Churchill's Rogue and it was kind of shortlisted for the Wilbur Smith Awards uh, and it was based on what those rogues would have done but based on a, a, an amazing man called Sir Nicholas Winton who set up the kinder trains and brought a lot of children just before um, the the Nazis invasions of in Poland and and got those children out and it's a phenomenal story and my story is kind of like from there that what the rogues had done and you know that proved to be quite popular and written you know some trilogies ever since um and the last one I did was based in the 1990s which is virtually my template of Romania and Bosnia but the lead character is, is a woman on that and people said to me well you know how can you write? You know how a woman did these things. You know you're a man, and I said, "Well, actually, there was a very different approach between the males on the convoy. Not all of them, but some of them." And I, I judge myself for that—that that ego, testosterone, the adventure—and led to loads of issues. You know, like in terms of image and everything else, and how you dealt with aggression. A lot of the women, it was like very focused on the objective in terms of getting the aid through. So that's why it was a very challenging book to write. But it was based on the, the women that I knew uh, through the convoys and how they reacted very differently uh, to the likes of me.
1: Well, and and that character is Irish, which I find interesting because I'm part Irish, and I my my lead character in my books is a male, so I've <laughs> I've gotten <laughs> the, the same comments. And of course, Jamie he, he writes fantasy, so his characters can be pretty much anything, right, Jamie? Oh,
0: right. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, just you just need to have a voice and a brain. I'll I'll, I'll write anything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but he has fun doing it. But but John somewhere oh, it right. said you finally finished your last manuscript, but I can't see as long as your adventures continue that you won't continue writing about people because you're going to keep running into them out there. So I'm hoping that's the case.
2: Uh, we'll see. I finished the last manuscript. Um, uh, so I think it's the one that, uh, that a lot of people said that it was the book that they wanted. And The, the Englander comes out in November. Uh, But we'll see. I think Romania, it's too close. It's too fresh uh, for me to be writing about two papers. I think it took me a long time to write about Bosnia and everything else because of of those involved. Um, But who knows? Um, Never say never again, as they say.
1: Well, can you give us a little hint as to what the Englander is about so we can look forward to that?
2: The Englander is a very different uh, thriller, as I say. It's 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 um it's a one off. It's it's an offshoot of the Lenka trilogy, as I say. Lenka, it's it's basically her her development, what she learned. She's in heartbreak, which is uh, and by the way, I must mention Kelly Warren, who's you know head of Spectrum Books, because she's she's turned the books and her team into audio books, and they're you know very successful. And it, it's based on this woman who sees what happens in Romania. She's um, an unworldly uh, teacher in, a, in an orphanage in court, but she wants to do something, not quite sure what, but she wants to do something. And it talks about how, you know, she learned the hard way in Romania, uh, you know, like she fell in love, turns out wasn't quite the person she thought it was, he was, uh, and then plots the work she did, you know, like her, her missions in Bosnia and then later South America, very much like my own. The Englander is an offshoot. It is based on her brother that she never knew uh, she had. And there's a lot of, you know, he's he's a damaged character, um, you know, has drunk a lot. And, you know, like, but also has been involved in age convoys, you know, the, the, uh, but he loses his daughter. He didn't know he had a daughter. And virtually as soon as he finds her, he loses her and it is that tale of how he turns on those that um, that led to a murder and it's very much taken on the mercenaries who um you know make their money you know like who who seek war and it's his you know like turning the tables and facing them that have t- taken everything that you know that he loved and those mercenaries are based very much on the ones that that i met uh, particularly in bosnia so again it's not the template that, you know, of where I went, but it's, you know, like for the Lenker trilogy. Um, but it has the characters that I met, you know, like some unsavory characters, as well as good characters. And they are in uh, The Englander. And as I say, hopefully, you know, it's going to be a, a powerful thriller. I think it is. I'm biased.
1: <laughs> yeah, you have to love your own writing, right? Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny because so, at least that trilogy is somewhat, if not completely autobiographical, even though the characters have changed, as were mine, because I I started just keeping notes on some of the adventures I had, and that turned into a book also. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've also written a humorous play and a book on writing, Correct.
2: Yeah, the, the the play is it's a very short play. It's not really a play at all, you know. Like, but it's based on a an interview between a um, an author and a critic, and very much based on my own experiences, which were quite painful, um, but in a humorous way. And um, I remember that when the play came out, you know, that the, the um, a teacher contacted me and she said, but I've never seen anything like this before because you actually talk about writing and you've even talked about grammar." And spelling, she said, in, in a way that is quite funny. She said, but would you mind if, um, you know, if, if I did this for the for the school, if we did it as a, you know, if we enacted it as a play? And I thought that is a fantastic compliment. So I did it as a kind of screenplay form and it's taken off since. But it, part of the thing is it's a humorous uh, story, very much tongue, tongue in cheek in some cases. But it's also, you know, like something out there about trying to deal with criticism. Because... You know, like I, I, I've i seen it, you know, in terms of my writing, uh, you know, like they, you do get, um, you know, trolls, although I often say that if you you yeah. know, if you if an author doesn't have their own army of trolls, they've never really written anything of interest. Um, <laughs> and I, I, you know, and I, I've got an army of them and it was trying to look at that and it can be demoralizing. And um, I wrote that play and I remember um, uh, a painter contacting me afterwards, an artist. And he said, "I read that." And he said, "And well, I loved it." And I said, "Well, I'm glad you liked it." And he told me his story. And his wife had um, committed suicide. And all of a sudden, he got people, you know, blaming him for it, and they, you know, but using his art and saying that his pictures had destroyed her—complete nonsense, you know. Like she was a big fan of his work, and he'd given up art. And I thought, well, this is, you know, like that critics, there's nothing wrong, you know, with the critics, but when you get that kind of, like, um, you know, like dangerous personal criticism that is really out to destroy the artist, and it's part of that about how to deal with it and, like, you know, so it's it's been quite popular, it's tongue-in-cheek, but it's done in a humorous way, gives an insight to writing, but at the same time, it's, like, you know, helped, you know, some people have contacted me. And I remember that artist came back and said, oh, you know, I've, take, I've taken up my, you know, my paintbrush again. I've, I've gone back to the canvas. And that's rewarding because, you know, for the three of us, when we write, we know the enjoyment of it. And isn't it wonderful when somebody says that they love your book, but when they come back and say, well, actually, it made a real positive change is just fantastic.
1: Exactly. And, and I've really loved some of the reviews I've gotten. But but, Jamie, I doubt that anybody could have any kind of serious issue
0: with your books. <laughs> oh, no. You know, I, 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 I say, I say quite often that that, you know, you, you haven't arrived unless you've been trolled. Um, I think nobody trolls unsuccessful work. So if you've got a troll, it's a sign that you've done something right
2: in my book. I feel as if I've been knighted. i'll have to uh, and i will read your books what would you recommend one book for me
0: Um, i would say start with extreme medical services it's a story of uh, paramedics who take care of supernatural creatures and it's an idea that came to me in the back of an ambulance in the middle of the night when i was transporting patients back in my days as a paramedic and uh so uh, uh that would be the place i would start brilliant sam
1: uh, my first one was under, and it's it's part of a six book trilogy, so that's a good place to start. Uh, it's under <laughs> McKenna,
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: McKenna Sinclair. Okay. And it's it's called Odyssey Partners of the Phoenix.
2: Right.
1: Kind of a long right. title, but.
2: Right, I've got that down. That, I, I,
1: I... That's a that's one of the books that has a lot of the folks that I worked with in a lot of the situations in there.
2: Brilliant! It brings. It, it, I, I always find it, it brings texture when you when, when you got yourself in the mind of someone. If you can create the character that you can, Jamie, you know, and, and obviously you know so we have to create characters, but very much I see the character in my mind, or I, I know how they, you know, how they talked, you know, and how they moved, and uh, you know, getting into their skin when you when you create a world. But if there's someone in that world that you know, as long as you're being, you know, like, um, you know, re- re- respecting them, then that that really does help.
1: You know, John, I think I'll just I'll send you. Uh, I just did a lot of updates on that first book. So I'll let me send you that instead of pulling it off Amazon, because I have to put it back up there. But I want you to have the cleanest copy but oh. another another question too uh, you know as you were delivering medical aid to orphanages and hospitals what what are the orphanages like what did you see there
2: um it's it's difficult to be honest it's very difficult to talk about so i remember like in, in one orphanage that i went to and um for example you know like when you know the stench as you walked in you couldn't believe that there were children inside there You hoped it was abandoned. And as you walked in, silence. And you thought, oh, it is abandoned. And then you turned into the ward and you would see it was packed with children. But there was no noise. You know, like it was just these open mouths and, you know, wide eyes just looking, you know, like at this this strange. I remember I tried to do something and I went into the kitchen and I just thought, no, I've got to clean this um and it was just picking up stuff and i started cleaning and i remember all the kids were having their their fit and i thought no i I need to make them laugh and um you know humor is very important to me even in the the the, you know like the, the you know the benevolence and everything else humor is a big part of it because it helped me get through things so i took my socks off put them on my hands bent down behind this hatch and i started to do a puppet show for these kids and then but nothing And I remember I just thought, oh, I thought there might be some reaction. And then I I, I raised myself, rose, and looked at them, and they'd never seen anything like that. There was no laughter. Um, And that was heartbreaking. And then when I went to an official orphanage were made in Bucharest and as I say the officials didn't want anyone to know that you know to know anything about this because many of them were actually part of all this under the previous Ceausescu's regime but the smell of disinfectant was incredible and I put my hand on the wall and burnt my hand and it was the other extreme they had thrown disinfectant everywhere bleach everywhere to try and clean it all up and you thought there's children here So that was some of my experiences. And as I said, to see some of those, you know, children in their own excrement and urine and bedclothes that hadn't been changed, uh, hardly any staff there, uh, you know, but then who would want to work there? And that was was heartbreaking. It was the fact that it just made you angry that at the highest level that nobody wanted, you know, that this was all being covered up. Uh, And as I say, that was one of the things that was highlighted with the, the fall of the Soviet Union and and then later on, you know, when you, you saw as well, and that you know, like and the fact of having to help renovate a building, not just to be a children's hospital, uh, but to be a hospice for children. Because there was no, no future, but you just thought in the time that they've got. So yeah, that, that they were tough times.
1: Well that would be a book that would be too hard to write. I can certainly see that. And, and how do you get something, you know, you got, you have to find something positive in a situation like that. And, and I, I don't know where you'd find it. Um, that's but sad.
2: we did, I say one thing, we, we did good work. We we helped set up, you know, like um, hospitals, we renovated the orphanages, made life a little bit easier. Um, we exposed many of the you know, not just the stories what would happen, but some of the what I call criminal elements behind it. And I had my clashes with some of them, um, which I don't regret. But it's certainly not something that you would encourage, like for anyone, you know, in these days as an aid worker uh, to be doing, um, you know, for that. But yes, you know, but we were we were the roguish natures. We were the ones that would, you know, get across the board. I'm, you know, and I'm, but so many incidences where. I remember on one uh, border where there were six vehicles that had come, German vehicles, and they were 18 tonners, uh, medical aid. And we just had like, I I remember I had like this uh, eight tonner um, uh, with with insulin. And um, we were told, right, you're not going forward. There's been a new stamp that was required this morning. And I was going, well, no, we're not going anywhere. We're going across. But one of the saddest things I ever saw were those vehicles suddenly start to turn around and i remember pleading with the drivers don't go back and they were saying well no we've been t- you know we we have to do, we have to go back you know like we have to get this we have to get this stamp but we won't be coming back because we're volunteers we're going back to work and that was one of the saddest things i ever saw uh, we didn't move i had an australian with me that i didn't know that well but he took his frying pan out started cooking sausages i'm screaming at these border guards and having guns aimed at me but he just he was a pacifist cooked these sausages completely through the border guards and so much so that he offered them the sausages they kind of didn't know what to do started eating the sausages and and lo and behold actually let us through so there were some stories where that kind of like that we stood up and we moved forward and we tried because we knew what was at the other end and we knew we couldn't fail
1: oh my god i love that the Aussie and the sausages that's
2: (laughs) That's it was incredible it was incredible yeah
1: well, as we get close to wrapping up here, you, you sent us some photos that you had about visiting the memorial to the Jewish families who died in the Warsaw Ghetto, during the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. You know, can you share that experience?
2: Well, I think on that, that it really brought home to me. I mean, I, you know, like, the, you know, knowing, you know, the kind of like, um, you know, kind of a, an amateur historian in the way and just looking at what happened with the Jewish families that were trapped in the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, you know, there was the Warsaw Uprising and then the Ghetto. Uh, you know, and, you know, just, just and you know, and they knew that they couldn't win. They had no external support. What you have in Ukraine is that you really do have a David and Goliath, a similar situation, but the West is trying to give, you know, kind of David in this sense, the kind of like the shot to put in its sling um you know like to try and defend themselves but with what happened in in warsaw was that i think that particularly with the ghetto is that they found out what happened about the concentration camps and they knew that they couldn't you know like win but they fought and the nazis you know like wing the city leveled it you know as we see what's happening now to cities over in in the east you know um Marpil you know that now they, you know like there's 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 no mercy, there's no pity, and you can see this now with Putin and his, his gangsters, you know and i I don't judge them as politicians, these are gangsters and how they operate um and you know with the Nazis and you just saw that and to see when I saw that in Warsaw, you know that kind of memorial, and I saw that you know like uh, the the Warsaw uprising and the, the you know the woman carrying the child, and I thought you know like that's exactly what's happening now and I saw something that if you you know just probably one final anecdote if I could I remember a train coming in at the station at Centrum in Warsaw and this mother was getting off and she had three kids and she was already I'd say she was like early 20s absolutely distraught and I was talking to someone trying to get some papers and she had her three kids around her and you could just see that she was trying to keep it together and had keeping it, kept it together for those three children. But you knew that she'd left probably a husband behind, a partner, you know, her family, her friends. um had no idea what was going to happen to them, was starting off afresh, had now entered Poland, didn't, probably didn't speak the language. That's one of the things people say, oh, well, they're very much aligned. Well, two different languages, two different worlds. Um, and she got off that train and she, she collapsed. You know, she just broke. And I remember her children looking at her and just, this is the one person that's kept us all together. She's been so strong. But I saw this Polish soldier um, and he was there and he handed his rifle to his colleague, took his hat off, went straight over, lifted up the youngest kid, started singing to the youngest kid. And you could see the other kids started to like, oh, this is great, this is the welcome. And that, I thought that was such a wonderful thing to do um, because what that woman wanted was space, just time, just to get herself together and pull you know, like, and just have, you know, weep and probably would wept on her own that night. But I thought this is the humanity And unfortunately, that those that we see with Putin, the others simply don't have. But it's there.
1: Oh my God, what an awesome experience. Well, John, you are the consummate humanitarian. Um, The things that one man can do are just, like again, like I said at the beginning, I'm just gobsmacked by your experiences and your your interest in, in, in helping people. It's just I don't know what to say. Jamie, help me out here.
0: (laughs) No, I just thanks for sharing all of your stories in the episode today. Um, I hope people are inspired by them. I hope they're inspired to to reach out and find ways that they can, in a productive way, help out, uh, whether it's in their local disaster situations or even in other places around the world. Um, There are always need for helpers. And that's something that we all can do. And <clears throat> that story about the, the, the Polish soldier just shows that, you know, the, 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 the way one person's small act of kindness can make such a huge difference for people. And I think yes. that that's a great way to look at that. So I think we'll leave it there. Um, John, where can folks find um, out more about what you're up to and maybe check out some of your books?
2: Oh, um, I've got a. um, There's a rogues uh, website. Um, uh, So and you know, so I've got that. I've got my Facebook page. um, You know, the 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 rogues trilogy. So sometimes I put posts up, up there as well about the Ukraine. It's not just about the books. Uh, but people who read the books, are, you know, it's kind of like it does. They want to know more about the world. They're interested in the characters that do these kind of things. Um, you know, so, you know, in terms of the Facebook page, LinkedIn, uh, the Rogues web page, which is the Rogues trilogy. Uh, so, you know, there, there's things up there. And and next month, if I can do one one post, every year I do a kind of a Rogues auction, uh, which is the books. I sign them and you know memorabilia as well and that's the raise money for a charity that means a lot to me which is the national society for the prevention of cruelty to children and that raises money for them never enough uh, but you know again i'll put stuff up there you know if people want to get a signed hardback or a t-shirt along those lines you know i'll happy to do whatever people want so that's where they can find out bits about me fantastic and there's not too many people. Not too many photos of me because I say I'm old now, not easy on the eye.
0: That's all good. And I'll make sure we share those links so people can um, click directly from the website over there and from our Facebook group as well. So we'll make sure people are connected to you there. Thanks so much for coming on today.
2: And thank you both for the excellent work that you do too.
0: Real quick, before we wrap up, I just want to thank Paragon Medical Education Group for their continued sponsorship of the show. You know, Dr. Joe and the whole team over there are able to provide you a customized uh, educational experience for your responders, wherever your jurisdiction might be, and that's internationally. So if if you want to bring in Joe to cover a clinical topic or a specific disaster-related topic, uh, just definitely reach out to them at paragonmedicalgroup.com or over at paragonmededu on Twitter, and also you can connect with them directly from the disasterpodcast.com page as well um sam where can folks find you well probably uh sitting in a chair reading john's books because
1: (laughs) i hope i could find time to do that other than that you'll find me on social media under sam bradley or sam bradley 11 in our disaster facebook group disaster podcast facebook group which i hope uh, john will take advantage of and on the disasterpodcast.com website how about you jamie
0: Well, you can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media locations, um, as well as um, on our DisasterPodcast.com page uh, website and um, our Facebook group as well. So please uh, catch up with us and friend or follow us over there. Um, I'm so glad we had John on the show today. Uh, So we we want to remind you all that if you are connected with someone who is doing some amazing things in the disaster response or humanitarian response community, um, put them in touch with us. We'd love to have them on the show and highlight some of the things they're doing around the world or in their communities. It'd be great to chat with them. Sam?
1: Absolutely. And John, we'll definitely have you back again. And and wherever you go from here, uh, please be safe and uh, we will talk to you soon. But in closing, John Enright, or John Wrighton, as he may be found on Amazon, get to know this guy. Um, he's my new hero. So thank you, John.
2: Oh, Thank you. Take care, both of you.